Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, February 4th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. And in our feature presentation, HT will tell us about her experience at the London premiere and junket for Warner Brothers' new movie, Birds of Prey. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film writer Y Train Bowie. Hey, everyone. HT, are you feeling better? I know you were uh, a little under the weather yesterday. Yeah, the travel kind of got it out of me. I just uh, had a horrible cough and um, was feeling, you know, a little feverish, but I am improved. Still coughing, still a little sick, but, you know, it's just, uh, it's this time of the year. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad you're with us, and uh, let's just jump right into the news before we get into all the Birds of Prey talk. I'm excited to talk about that movie with you in a little bit, but um, first, let's talk a little bit about the Oscars. Uh, Brad and I talked about them a little bit yesterday. Uh, the ceremony is coming up this Sunday, and now some odds makers have uh, have officially sort of like set the line on what the favorite is to win Best Picture. What is that movie, HT? That movie is Sam Mendes' uh, World War One drama, 1917. The betting aggregators from usbookies.com have released their Oscar predictions for this year's uh, Academy Awards for all the major categories, including Best Picture, Best Director, and the Acting Nominees. 1917 leads the way uh, with a 3 to 5 odds, uh, followed by Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with 4 to 1 odds, Parasite 6 to 1, um, and the rest follow after that. Um, so yeah, the, it, the Best Director they also have going to Sam Mendes uh, by 1 to 4, uh, followed by Bong Joon-ho for 3 to 1. To Tarantino, Scorsese, and Todd Phillips. Uh, the acting nominees are pretty standard for what we've been expecting with this race so far. They have Renee Zellweger leading for Best Actress, Joaquin Phoenix leading for Best Actor, Laura Dern for Best Supporting Actress, and Brad Pitt for Best Supporting Actor. So those don't really come with surprises, but 1917 has really come in uh, as like a, as a frontrunner in just like the past couple weeks since it won at the Golden Globes because it wasn't really in the conversation um, up until then. And suddenly now with uh, 
bunch of Directors Guild Awards, Producers Guild Awards, uh, BAFTAs and Critics' Choice Awards under its uh, sleeves. It is now the frontrunner at the Oscars. So how do you feel about that? I, I assume you would be as happy as I would if Parasite ends up winning Best Picture. But if these yeah. odds end up, if they end up being spot on, what would you think about a win for 1917? Well, I was a little bummed that Parasite isn't the front runner because I thought it was really picking up steam, especially after landing the SAG uh, top prize, uh, Screen Actors Guild Award. Screen Actors Guild Awards Best Ensemble Prize. And um, that was a big sort of uh, predictor for a lot of the Best Picture nominees for past years. And Parasite would have been such a bold and interesting and revolutionary choice for uh, the Academy, especially because it's a film that basically uh, points the camera at and sort of takes down that whole, the whole type of person, like the very, the rich upper class, as it were. And 1917 is very much a typical winner of an Oscar. It is a war drama. It's something that's incredibly preferred by the Academy. But having seen it, finally, I will say I'm not totally mad that it would, that it's the front runner because it is a good movie. Sam Mendes directs the hell out of it. Roger Deakins is just uh, a, a maestro behind the camera. And it's really, a, got, it's got this wonderful emotional through line too that really moved me to tears. So it's not something I would be mad about, but it's something that is probably the least interesting choice for the Academy in terms of just the how history could possibly be, be made with Parasite. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and you know, especially in pointing out like how, um, historical even though the movie is this sort of like technical marvel it does really check a ton of boxes that are um you know if you look through the history of best picture winners and stuff like that there are a lot of movies that look an awful lot like 1917 even though they aren't shot in in you know what is supposed to be one continuous take so um yeah i I mean i really i'm hoping that parasite can still somehow pull it out like in my heart of hearts that's that's what i'm you know, I have my fingers crossed for on Oscar night and maybe with the way that the preferential ballot works, which I'm not even fully uh, sure that I 100% understand how that works. I think there are probably articles and podcasts out there that are devoted entirely to explaining how that whole thing works. So I don't want to try to explain it here. I'll just try to maybe I can try to track one down and put one in the show notes or something for people if they're curious about how that goes, because it's not just a, you know, this person votes for this and, and they tally up the votes and that's it. It's it's more complicated than that. Um, but maybe because Parasite is so well loved and like you mentioned, that SAG award and there's all those those shots at the at the SAGs of like all those actors giving it a, a standing ovation and this, the acting body is like by far the the biggest uh, voting um, block of the Oscars. So maybe there's still a chance, or maybe I'm just being naive. I don't know. Cross fingers. Bong Hive, come out, come through. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Uh, Okay, so let's move on to our next story, which is Chris Pratt is returning to television. Um, He sort of, uh, you know, he he worked on uh, some TV shows for, he sort of kicked around Hollywood for about a decade before breaking out as Andy uh, Dwyer on Parks and Recreation, and obviously since then has gone on to become, you know, this massive movie star who's headlining a ton of major film franchises, but now he is returning to TV to star in a show called The Terminal List, and this show is going to 
reunite him with um, Antoine Fuqua, who's directing, and Fuqua directed Chris Pratt in the adaptation of, uh, or remake of The Magnificent Seven a few years ago. So the premise for this, The Terminal List is a conspiracy thriller that combines elevated action with deep psychological questions about the cost of pushing our nation's highest trained operators too far. The series follows Reese, Chris Pratt, after his entire platoon of Navy SEALs is ambushed during a high-stakes covert mission. Reese returns home with conflicting memories of the events and questions about his culpa- uh, culpability. However, as new evidence comes to light, Reese discovers dark forces working against him. So, um, I don't know, it kind of sounds a little bit like a like a Jason Bourne movie mixed with Amazon's Homecoming or something. I, I feel like there's uh, an appealing combination to be had there, so maybe some, some good potential. Uh, Chris Pratt has played a Navy SEAL on film before. He, he played one in uh, Zero Dark Thirty, the Catherine Bigelow movie from 2012. Um, I'm not crazy about Antoine Fuqua as a director, and I, I really didn't like the Magnificent Seven movie that they made together. But um, I'm curious, what do you think about this HT? Like Chris Pratt being, I don't, I don't know, it, the, the conversation about like movie stars in Hollywood is so um, so much more complicated than it used to be because of the number of streaming services and just the way that we consume entertainment. It, like the entire industry has sort of shifted away from like the movie star uh, thing as being like a, a primary driving force of the industry. But if there are, if you want to have the conversation about movie stars, I feel like Chris Pratt would be in the you know top ten or fifteen in Hollywood because he's involved in so many major. Uh, franchises and stuff right now. So what do you think about him coming back to TV? This is a, a continuation of a, a trend that we've been seeing for a long time, but um, are you interested in uh, Pratt returning to the small screen like this? Oh, um, I think, yeah, I agree with you that the movie star is kind of dead now. I don't know if I would quite define Chris Pratt as as sort of that new age movie star because I think it's almost like he's by luck been in so many big franchises or at least by some sort of... Um, uh, you know, sh- shrewdness because he is charismatic when he's not in the leading man role, but uh, in the roles which which ha- which are like the biggest franchise he's in, I find him to be the least charismatic, and um, I'm not really interested to see him playing sort of that straight straight edge cop again because it just it's very boring to me whenever he does something where he's just kind of trying to take himself very seriously. Mm. So I can't say I'm very excited about this. I, I, I just, I miss when Chris Pratt was doing comedy and was just kind of willing to make fun of himself and self and be self deprecating. Um, and I think that was when he was his most charming. So, um, I don't really know if I'm interested in this, like Chris Pratt and Jason Bourne type role. It just seems like something that's a little bit, uh, aged, aged now. Yeah. Did you happen to see the Lego Movie 2 by any chance? I didn't get a chance to watch it, no. It's much better than I thought it was going to be, and uh, I think that is the the level of Chris Pratt that you're looking for, because he plays multiple characters. He plays Emmett, the, the main character from the Lego Movie, and he also plays like a what appears to be a twin of himself, um, but like a, a, gri- a more grizzled version who goes by the name Rex Danger Vest. <laughs> it's very <laughs> much him like making fun of, of the uh, you know Jurassic World persona and, and tough guy image that he's sort of created in a lot of those big franchise films. So I'd recommend checking that out. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about this, this show. I feel like, like I said, it, it has potential, but honestly, a, lot, a huge part of it ends up being like where this thing is going to end up because it doesn't have a home yet. And if it ends up on, I don't know, Showtime or one of the the sort of um, less frequented 
streaming services or whatever. There are so many platforms and so many ways for for people to watch stuff now. It, it might just like, you know, land with a thud and nobody would even care about this show. Whereas like 10 years ago, if you got, you know, one of the biggest ho- stars in Hollywood and a, a major director together to make a show like this, people would definitely tune in wherever it was. But now it's like everything is so splintered. So I, I'm curious to see where this ends up and, and how it all shakes out there. So, uh, okay, let's talk a little bit about Apple TV plus that, that could be, you know, maybe a potential home for, uh, this show, the terminal list. Um, but, uh, Apple TV plus seems to be having uh, a bit of, of an awareness problem, I think. So, uh, what's the latest stage two? Yes, so according to an analyst named Tony Sakanagi, fewer than 10% of Apple device owners who are eligible for the company's one-year free offer for Apple TV Plus have subscribed to the streaming service. So uh, if you you remember, back when it launched in November 2019, Apple offered all Apple device owners who bought a device uh, between September 10th and November 1st of last year a free one-year subscription to Apple TV Plus, but only 10% of Apple t- Apple customers who are, are eligible for that offer have actually taken it up. Um, and uh, it seems to be, yeah, like I said, a lack of awareness, exposure, um, and um, it doesn't really bode well for the uh, performance of Apple TV Plus, which um, has, which lacks a light library of licensed content like a lot of its other um, com- competitors such as Disney Plus as well as NBC Universal and Warner Media's upcoming streaming services. Yeah, so this analyst it's interesting he sort of breaks down three different scenarios for why this um, I guess adoption rate for Apple TV TV Plus might have been so low. Can you run through those three scenarios? Yeah, so in in scenario one, it says that Apple hasn't succeeded in its promotion of the service as it juggles its marketing with a range of other new services and devices. Scenario two, Apple may be conservatively estimating its take rate or deliberately scaling uh, its promotions of TV Plus slowly to mitigate the negative accounting impact of its early ramp. Or scenario three, Apple TV Plus is simply failing to resonate with customers, perhaps due to its limited content offerings. Yeah, so do you have any thoughts about which of those scenarios seems the most likely to you? I think it's a combination of all three because, uh, like I said before, it doesn't have a library of licensed titles that uh, will be appealing to new subscribers. But also, Apple really hasn't advertised the fact that Apple TV Plus launched. I remember a lot of uh, sort of anecdotes of people who didn't even know that it launched even when they looked on their Apple device. Um, it wasn't on the front page or uh, of the of their devices when they opened them up. It wasn't really advertised at all by Apple, which is a very strange sort of rollout for them. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And I think, um, you know, like the, the idea that uh, they may be conservatively estimating its take rate or deliberately scaling its promotions slowly to offset the negative accounting uh, of its early ramp is... Um, I don't know, that seems like a generous read to me. Like, like it's trying to retroactively make it seem like it was their plan the whole time to start slowly and like underwhelm. So maybe they can, you know, like swoop in and and uh, make a bigger play later on in the process. But I, I'm not really sure about that. It seems like a, an interesting, uh, maybe flawed strategy. Um, the idea that these shows are failing to resonate with customers is interesting too. But I, I talked with Peter about this before we started recording because he subscribes to Apple TV Plus. He, he wanted me to point out that 
three of the four shows that he's watched so far he thought were very good to great uh, little america for all mankind and the morning show he said that um Apple TV Plus has a, a pretty good batting record uh, record with um, with its programming, but it's really sad that nobody knows that it exists. And that's one of the things that you mentioned, and, and I feel like that's its biggest problem. Peter said that like from his conversations with people, um, so many people are just unaware that it, it that Apple TV Plus is even a thing. He says on on the device and on the app, the Apple TV Plus section is buried in a sub menu, so even like regular Apple users might not see it. Um, he thinks that it should have its own app outside of the Apple TV Plus app uh, or the Apple TV app on devices and stuff like that so that people can actually notice it at the very least. And that's kind of why I haven't used it. Um, I was one of those 10% of people who uh, bought an iPhone and then ended up signing up for the free year of service, but I haven't watched anything yet because I have a smart TV, but it's not an Apple TV, so you can't use the app on it. And I just don't like the idea of watching stuff on my phone or or my computer as as much as watching it on you know the big screen so there are so many factors that go into this like um i feel like when people buy products i i receive the information that i got that free year through an email and i think a lot of people probably just delete that stuff because it seems like terms and conditions and things that nobody actually reads. Like nobody at the Apple store ever said anything to me about it. So I wonder if a partial solution to this is as simple as just training employees to maybe boost awareness on the ground. What do you think they need to do to boost that awareness, HT? I mean, just make it more visible. Like you said, don't put it in a sub menu, make it its own app or make it easier to access. I think a lot of things, a big part of why streaming services are so successful are ease of access. And um, if Apple TV Plus is incredibly hard to access, access it defeats the whole purpose of it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, of course, just like making people more aware of it when they actually are are able to get this offer and the subscription itself is actually fairly cheap too it's only five dollars a month um and yet people still aren't aware of it or are willing to fork over that five dollars a month because they don't know enough about either the service or the titles that are on it either i think the marketing for apple has been like very secretive strangely like yeah. i remember they rolled out their trailers really slowly and then i heard nothing other than like one or two trailers and it was it was just a very odd rollout yeah, for sure. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, Disney Plus has raked in over 25 million subscribers since launching last fall. Uh, Brad wrote an article about this. Um, Disney is going to be holding a uh, an earnings call later this afternoon, and they're expected to announce that somewhere between 25 million and 30 million subscribers have signed up for Disney Plus since launching in November. So that's um, a, a massive increase over what Apple has and, and a pretty impressive thing. But I mean, you know, just talking about the advertising level of it, like Disney spent huge amounts of money on advertising to to bump awareness for Disney Plus. I don't know if those ad numbers have ever been made public, but here in LA, there were buses and billboards and the whole deal uh, promoting Disney Plus, and I did not see anywhere near that level of marketing for Apple TV Plus. And obviously, um, you were talking about like the the access to the library titles and all of that stuff that Apple TV Plus is lacking. Disney Plus, of course, has, you know, The Mandalorian and the upcoming Marvel shows and stuff like that. So it remains to be seen whether the 25 to 30 million subscribers are going to actually stick around on Disney Plus. But because of the those name brands that people really, really care about, I feel like they have a better shot of, uh, of retaining their audience maybe than Apple TV Plus does of pulling in new people at this point. So... 
um, yeah, interesting, uh, interesting times in the streaming world, the streaming wars and all that stuff. And, and we're still pre-Quibi and pre-Peacock and pre-HBO Max. So I feel like we're still in the, the calm before the storm, even as crazy as things seem right now. So uh, one more news item I just thought it was worth mentioning because it's kind of ridiculous. Uh, Chris Rock is rebooting the Saw franchise. We talked about that when that news originally came out. But uh, the trailer started to leak earlier today, and it confirmed the title for this thing is actually Spiral, colon, from the Book of Saw. So that's the title of the new Saw movie. Um, th there's been a rumor going around uh, from a Canadian film distributor that handles titles for a bunch of studios that that was going to be the title. And a, a lot of people were like, this is a mistake. There's no way that that's real. But evidently, that is the title uh, the title that shows up at the end of this leaked trailer. So we're guessing the real trailer is going to be coming online pretty soon. So prepare yourselves for a spiral from the Book of Saw. That's uh, very, very ridiculous. But uh, Okay, let's, ju let's jump into our feature presentation, HD. I'm excited to talk to you about Birds of Prey because this was a movie that uh, I wanted very much for, for it to be on our most anticipated movies of 2020 list. We managed to you know, squeak it through and, and get it on that list. So I'm, I'm happy about that. Um, we talked, uh, I don't remember what day it was, but when the uh, embargo lifted on the reactions for Birds of Prey, I think Brad read your tweet on an episode of the podcast and Peter talked a little bit about some of the negative things that he was hearing and was happy to hear that uh, the movie seems to be actually pretty good and it sounds like you enjoyed it. So I wanted to give you, uh, sort of open up the floor to you and, and let you talk a little bit more about um, what you saw and what you thought. So what's the deal with Birds of Prey? Yeah, it's great. Uh, it's just a total blast of a film. It's this kaleidoscopic, raunchy, funny uh, action film that has some of the best uh action fight sequences in a superhero movie I've seen. There's a touch of John Wick in there, which uh, makes sense because Chaz Stahelski came on as second unit director during the reshoots for the film, and it really blends seamlessly with this sort of zany, um, hyper-stylized style that Kathy Yan brings to the film that uh, has some sort of resemblance to early Tarantino as well. I remember there are some comparisons to Pulp Fiction that uh, Kathy Yan was speaking of in early interviews, and I think she pulls it off. It's just, it's so fun, and it's a it's very silly, and the characters, though, are great and complex. They're probably my favorite part of the film because um, the plot itself is a little bit lacking, but the characters and the character dynamics really make up for it. Um, this is, you know, Harley Quinn's movie, and it's told from her point of view in a very unique way. She's kind of set up as this unreliable narrator, and the film will frequently rewind and go and fast forward and suddenly jump ahead uh, based on her very wackadoodle storytelling style. And um, because of that, there's just like this hyper reality to this whole film, and it feels like it is being taking place inside Harley's mind and it's colorful and, and crazy. Um, but she has such a great dynamic with all the characters, um, especially Cassandra Kane, uh, played by Ella J. Basco. They have this fun sort of, uh, partner sidekick 
dynamic going on in which Harley takes her under her wing. Um, and I like how uh, she Harley is never really never really gets along with anyone else. Um, she barely gets along with Cassandra Kane. She kind of comes in to everyone's lives and ruins their lives in some ways, but they end up kind of coming together uh, at the end. And uh, the dynamics between the female characters are incredibly compl- complicated and flawed. Uh, and uh, in a way that it makes this film feel like it's not trying to, it's not burdened with the idea of being, of empowering women or being uh, inspiring. It's about just telling these the stories of these really messy, complicated women who don't always get along and who often don't get along and um, are forced under the circumstances to work together. Um, And I like that it shows some of those more messy aspects of of womanhood and femininity. And uh, Harley Quinn really is sort of like the center of that. But yeah, it's it's such a fun movie. Um, It is, the tone is sometimes a little all over the place and the story is the weakest part. Uh, There's a big MacGuffin at the center essentially and um, it has to do with Roman Sionis which is uh, Ewan, McGregor, Ewan McGregor's character Black Mask um, and um, the the plot is yeah pretty paper thin and once it actually kicks in it slows down the movie a little bit but um, otherwise it's, it's it is a it is a really fun movie so it sounds like it's better than you thought it was gonna be right yeah I had hopes that it would be good I was kind of anticipating uh, a disaster a la Suicide Squad. I was hoping against hope that it would be good. But I would say that this is actually the movie that Suicide Squad, that people wanted Suicide Squad to be. Hmm. Um, before we jump into your interview with Kathy Yan, I, I wanted to ask uh, something that you mentioned a second ago was that the movie sort of feels like it takes place in Harley's head, or at least it's it's from her perspective. It's sort of bouncing around inside her head. Does it, does it feel like... Um, uh, slight or inconsequential because there's an unreliable narrator or does it feel like all of these things actually happened it's just the order is a little bit jumbled do you know what I'm, do you know what I'm trying yeah. to get at yeah the latter there is sort of a slightness to it there isn't really much uh, going on underneath the surface of this film it's a very much sort of like surface level uh if that makes sense like there's no deeper meanings to this film um except for maybe the uh, the sort of comp the female dynamics going on um but yeah it's uh it definitely i would say that it le- it's more towards the latter like the story feels real it just feels like it's told out of order yeah um so what did you think about kathy ann's direction because she's sort of an unknown filmmaker for a lot of people i know she made this really really small movie at sundance last year i think it was or maybe the year before that like almost nobody saw i don't think it had any sort of wide release or anything close to a wide release so she's sort of an x-factor for a lot of us going in um what did you think about the way that she uh sort of controlled this narrative and wrangled this whole thing together I was really impressed with her direction. It's very hyper stylized, like I said, but I was really impressed with how it felt both sleek and almost a little bit raw around the edges at the same time. Um, and I was especially impressed with the with the fact that there felt like there was no division between the action and the dialogue and drama scenes. One of my biggest sort of complaints or caveats with superhero movies these days is that there often is a big divide between action scenes and between the drama because when you have indie directors hired on usually they're really adept at playing that drama and like directing that and usually the action goes to second unit directors and there usually you can see a sort of distinct switch in style between them and um, because superhero movies 
are such a well-oiled machine these days, um, it is like the action is often done on um, autopilot. But here it is very smooth between the two of them. It feels like the action and the and the drama blends together really seamlessly, and the action feels like it fits that hyper stylized. Um, uh, flair that Kathy Ann brings to it. Um, I was speaking before how it felt like there's a touch of John Wick to it. And um, I would say that, yeah, there's sort of that similar pulpiness to her style that um, I think that really translates uh, to the entirety of the movie. And I, I, I really enjoyed that, how the action was just blended seamlessly with the drama. Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited to see what that's like. So you, uh, you went to London to mm-hmm. uh, see the London premiere and the junket for and attend the junket and, and interview a bunch of people for this movie. So before we, we get to your Kathy Ann interview, what was that experience like? It was great, um, other than getting sick. But uh, I was able to see the London premiere of the film. They did a long red carpet and they stuck us in the theater for a couple hours before they finally started the movie. But it was great seeing it in the theater. They had a whole row at front up front of cosplayers for the film um, and finally the cast came in and uh, greeted the entire audience and introduced the movie uh, before we saw we got to see the movie for the first time and it was a really charged uh, exciting experience to see that with everyone um, and then um, the junket itself took place the next day and I got to talk to Margot Robbie Chris Messina um, and uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Journey Smollett Bell, uh, Rosie Perez, uh, producers Sue Kroll and Brian Uncles, as well as director Kathy Yan. Uh, and um, we spoke to, I spoke to them all at, at several points uh, for a very brief amount of time. You'll get to hear my Kathy Yan interview later. Um, but they were all really wonderful and sweet. Um, and um, Despite the short time I got to talk to them, I got I learned quite a bit, and it was really fun just to see the dynamic that uh, worked so well on screen uh, was sort of com- something that came from real life. They all seemed to really get along uh, in person, and um, at, after the junket too, they uh, they we got. It, to go to a birds of prey sort of party a themes party in which they set up a roller derby rink uh because in, at one point in the film harley quinn uh joins a roller, der- roller derby uh team and it play her roller derbying plays a part in the climax of the film as well and we all got to badly roller skate around uh while drinking <laughs> not while drinking they did not allow us to drink at the same time but okay. there were there were drinks there so they yeah. wouldn't allow them to mix but <laughs> it was fun. Like they, they, there were some, you know, Instagram opportunities. There were some uh, carnival games in which I don't know what it's. I don't know the name of this game, but the one where you like uh, swing the hammer on the and the thing, and it like, oh, like it goes up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember what it's called, but yeah, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they had those sort of like carnival festival games because one of the cl- the big climax takes place at a fun house. Um, a great sequence, by the way. Look forward to that. Awesome. And um, they had a little station where like they made you up. To look like Harley Quinn, so it was it was a fun little experience and um, definitely something that uh, was worth getting sick and going to the whole trip. Very cool. So we have um, in the show notes of this episode, I'm going to link to a lot of the Birds of Prey pieces that you've already published. You have a few more coming, I think, in the in the coming days, right? Yes. Okay, cool. And then so let's now play your interview with director Kathy Ann. So what did you think of the reception to the movie after um, it? screen last night oh it's pretty amazing mm-hmm. you know I think that like it's it's certainly a bit of a relief yeah because <laughs> you never know and I think we're all just really excited 
Yeah, yeah I remember that um, when you came to pitch this film to the producers, mm-hmm. uh, you talk, they talked about you doing a sizzle reel of mm-hmm. like, your vision of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember what that sizzle reel was and like, how it became reflected in the final product? Sure, it was more of a tonal reel, I would mm-hmm. say, in the sense that it, it, it didn't try to like, re-describe the, the movie, mm-hmm. um, but it, it was really, I think, um, a, like, just an unabashed, like, fun, kinetic, tough like um real that like had this story or narrative about mm-hmm. women sort of coming together and and overpowering guys mm-hmm. um and like in kind of taking slices of life of not just references from other movies but you know um like newsreels and and and, and the bachelor and, and and this wild and crazy little like montage of different things and mm-hmm. Um, I think back to that now, and I think about the spirit that the movie has, and I do think that kind of translated, which is really nice. And all I, I really wanted it to feel a little anthemic and, and have, wi- especially women, walk out of the theater and be like, fuck yes. <laughs> yeah, I, do. I don't know if I was supposed to say fuck, I'm sorry, as I say it again. That's fine. <laughs> fuck that. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, I do like that uh, this movie doesn't feel sort of like burdened to just be empowering because it all is about these flawed, complicated women. Um, and it's all not just about you know, being empowering, but also about those little ca- moments between the characters. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking, of course, about you know the hair tie scene, <laughs> which is going a little viral. Um, are those little were those little moments like important to you to like making this feel authentic to the female experience? Absolutely, absolutely. And there's these little things, and the the ideas are just like they you know they just keep free flowing. I mean, the hair tie idea came about once we've already pretty much had the lock script, but like. As we can, as we continue to try to refine it and make it better, Christina Hudson was like, you know what? I just like why are all the women like have perfect hair? You know, it's always perfect hair, and they're always down, no matter what action movie it is. And like that's just ridiculous. <laughs> and I was like, I totally agree. Mm-hmm. Like I need to put my hair up just to I don't know, like sip a cup of coffee, you know, mm-hmm. or like go to yoga. And so this idea that like they would have perfect hair. And so we wanted to put that in the movie, and we, it just was like a little cheeky nod to all these conversations that I think women have all the time. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of conversations, too, about what the female gaze is these days, and we've seen in movies like Hustlers, mm-hmm. Portrait of Lady on Fire, that mm-hmm. it's not just about sexualizing women. And there's, you know, that scene where uh, Ewan McGregor's character, Black Mask, uh, mm-hmm. sort of... Um, makes a woman's strip and mm-hmm. dance in front of him, but your camera doesn't isn't exploitive in that way. Mm-hmm. It's about him exploiting her. Mm-hmm. Um, so was that something that like just not in just the script, but also in your camera work to like make sure you have that female gaze? Totally. I mean, it was much more important what was happening to her on her face mm-hmm. in a way. So like it, so you know, once the once the dress was off, we pretty much just stayed in a close up on her, or we focused on him because. Mm-hmm. In my mind, it's way less about the actual physical act, but more about power and embarrassment and the fact that he just wanted to do that to her. And he mm-hmm. could, and he got away with it. And that's what he, you know, that's what he loved about it. It wasn't the actual um, stripping, yeah. per se. Yeah. Going back to the tone of the movie, it blends so well with the, like, the action sequences and the action choreography, which is some of the best we've seen in like, a superhero movie. Oh, um, and I know that, uh, in, especially in like, the reshoots, and uh, Ch- Chaz Stahelski, director of the John Wick movies, mm-hmm. came in to sort of um, help shoot some of those, uh, mm-hmm. those action sequences. As a second unit director. As a second unit yeah. director, yeah. Um, so how did you sort of reconcile your own very distinct directorial style mm-hmm. with his 
um, action choreography was that difficult or was there like a good partnership going on? Oh for sure I mean we had been working with 8711 from the beginning mm -hmm. and so and the reason that I chose them was because I wanted that style I wanted to feel um, you know Jonathan Eusebio who's our stuck coordinator actually you know, we really got along and we like talked a lot about Jackie Chan movies and mm -hmm. how practical it was and how you weren't cutting really quickly, you were kind of like staying on it and staying on the action. And I felt like those guys at 8711 and, um, you know, which Chad obviously founded, mm -hmm. um, those guys were doing the best at that, you know, at just practical, interesting, um, um, like uh, camera work and action. And so it was all in by design, you know, is all part of like the greater vision of what the movie would be, how we would shoot it, um, and so it was just part of the conversation. It was never like, here's the movie and then here are the action sequences, yeah. How much of the stunts did the... Oh, that's, that's, that's it. Okay, well thank you so much for speaking with me. Yeah, this was so fun. So Alright, so hopefully you enjoyed that, and I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. HT, where can people find more of your work online? You can find me writing every day at SlashFilm.com. I'm on Twitter at htranbui, and you can listen to me on my other podcast, The Millennial Falcon, on uh, iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Awesome. Uh, you can find me writing at SlashFilm.com. You can find me at uh, on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears, and you can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at SlashFilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we will talk to you tomorrow.